Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, welcome everybody. Thanks all very much for coming to uh, what's going to be a very special occasion uh, this evening. I'm Lucinda Platt and I'm Head of Department of Social Policy here at the LSE. Um, if you'd like to tweet along, the hashtag is um, hashtag LSE Lansbury 2022. Um, I want to remind you that the event is uh, being broadcast online via Zoom and recorded, and uh, hopefully a podcast will be available online shortly after the event, uh, subject to there being no technical difficulties. It's my very great pleasure to be introducing and chairing the 10th annual George Lansbury Memorial Event in partnership with the George Lansbury Memorial Trust, LSE Library, and the Department of Social Policy at LSE. Although George Lansbury is generally and rightly associated with the East End of London, which he represented in Parliament for so many years, he also has LSE connections that deserve to be better known. He was not among those who founded the LSE in 1895, but he did serve alongside one of those founders, Beatrice Webb, on the Royal Commission on the Poor Laws in 1905 to 1909. Unsurprisingly, George, who was appointed to the Royal Commission on the strength of his contribution to the pioneering work of the Poplar Board of Guardians, was a signatory to the Commission's famous Minority Report, largely co-authored by two of the LSE's founders, Sidney and Beatrice Webb. This concern about poverty you already have spotted is reflected in our theme for this evening. Yet George Lansbury has another LSE connection. Many of his papers are deposited here in the archives of the British Library of Political and Economic Science. I'm pleased to say that these are now being digitised and the first two volumes covering the period 1877 to 1906 have recently been published and are freely available online. But despite these LSE connections, this is the first time we have hosted this annual event here at the LSE, but hopefully it won't be the last. The George Lansbury Memorial Trust was founded in 2012 to celebrate George's contribution to local and national life and to promote awareness of the contemporary resonances of the issues on which George campaigned, not least through events such as this. I have been asked to note the Trust thanks to the LSE for hosting this event and to Poplar HARCA, who run the Lansbury Estate in the East End, named in George's honour, for their continuing sponsorship of it. Thanks also go to the Trust's long-serving patron, George's granddaughter, Dame Angela Lansbury, who sadly died last month. Tonight, we also honour her memory, commitment to her grandfather's political legacy and her own campaigning on issues like AIDS. Every year since 2013, this George Lansbury Memorial event has focused on one, in particular, of the many causes which George championed. In the context of the current cost of living crisis, this year's theme of poverty and how to tackle it could hardly be more topical, as well as appropriate to the event and to the setting. Given the complexity and the importance of this subject, the format of the event is different this year. It is not just the first time the George Lansbury Memorial event has been held at the LSE, it is also the first time it has not been a lecture. Instead, we have not a royal commission, as in 1905 to 1909, but a round table, bringing a range of expertise to bear on the vexed question of how do we eradicate poverty. 
So I'm very pleased to um, introduce our panel this evening. Claire Harding is Research Director at Centre for London. She joined the Centre in 2020 and was responsible for their research programme. Before joining Centre for London, she worked at Corum Family and Childcare. Claire has also previously worked in mental health and local government consultancy. Dave Hill has been a freelance journalist for over 40 years and runs the website onlinelondon.co.uk. He's writing a book about the pandemic in London. Mani Hoti is Chief Executive of Trust for London. He has extensive experience of working with low-income communities across the country during a career that has been split between being a grant seeker and a grant maker. He has worked on a range of social issues related to life in low-income communities and on poverty more generally. Stuart Lansley is visiting fellow in the Centre for Policy Studies, University of Bristol, a council member of the Progressive Economy Forum and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. He is author of The Richer, The Poorer, How Britain Enriched the Few and Failed the Poor, a 200-year history. And last but not least, Ruth Lister is a Labour peer and Emeritus Professor of Social Policy at Loughborough University. She's a former director of the Child Poverty Action Group and its current honorary president, and is the author of Poverty. So the format for this event will be as follows. I'm going to ask each of the panelists in turn to speak, to, to speak for up to 10 minutes. Um, and I'm going to be quite, try and be quite strict about the time, keen, keen, since we've got a lot to get in. Um, and they're going to speak to the question, how do we eradicate poverty? We'll then have a Q&A session, and the Q&A will come from you, but also we have people joining us online, so we'll try and have a mixture from both, uh, questions from both sources. Um, and then uh, try to fit in a summing up by each of the speakers on the panel um, at the end. And once it's finished, join, you're very welcome to join us for a reception which will take place um, outside, uh, where there'll be refreshments. So to get proceedings going, without more ado, um, I'm going to ask Claire to kick us off on the, her answer to this question. Thank you very much. I'm first, which is purely because I'm first in the alphabet, which is absolutely great because everybody else here is probably going to say the same things but in better ways, and I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, so my exam question today, all of our exam question today, is about whether it's possible to eradicate poverty. I'm not sure if it's possible to eradicate poverty. I suspect it rather depends on how we define poverty. But I'm absolutely certain that it's possible to reduce it absolutely massively. We're a rich country, still. And that the reasons that we haven't and that we are not at the moment moment are at least as much political as they are economic. We might debate the balance between those two things and the need for separability of those two things a bit later on. Um, and I had the pleasure of listening to Manny speak at an event a couple of weeks ago. It's always a danger with these sorts of things. You know that your fellow panellists will have really clever things to say. And he made, I think, the very important point that we don't need new solutions to tackling poverty. We know what the solutions to tackling poverty are. They have to do with money, they have to do with work, and they have to do with housing. And there's a whole bunch of people on this panel who know these things in far more detail than I do. So I thought um, it might be useful instead to think about why we haven't done that and kind of the politics of poverty in the UK, which I can really only scratch the surface on in my 10 minutes or so. Before I start that, I want to make the point that we are not going to eradicate hygiene poverty 
or fuel poverty or food poverty or period poverty or any of the other of these things that we talk about unless we eradicate poverty. You have huge admiration for those people who put effort in to getting the people the goods that they need. That's often the best grassroots approach that we really have to poverty. But the solution to poverty is money. The solution to somebody not having enough money to buy tampons is not to give them tampons, it's to give them money and it's to give them choice. So I guess when we're talking about the why of poverty and the politics of poverty, um, one of the really interesting things to think about, and you know, we, we could go all the way back to, to George Lansbury's time well over 100 years ago, is, is how poverty has changed and how, how we think about poverty has changed. You know, I grew up mostly in the 1990s and that was sort of the middle of a time in British history when poverty was very much couched as being about unemployment. Poverty was seen as being about being out of work um, for working age people. And child poverty was very often framed, not always, but often, in terms of non-working parents. We heard this term a lot. And you know, before, before I work, worked here, um, I worked in childcare for quite a while, which is how I originally know both Manny and Ruth. And I think we really saw that, that legacy, even right up to the mid-2010s, um, still now, in fact, in how childcare provision was being delivered by the state. You know, the highest quality nurseries that we have in this country are, by and large, the maintained nurseries which are being run by local authorities. There aren't very many of those left, but the ones that they are exceptionally good. And they run on short days. They run, you know, often, often just half-day provision, sometimes just 9 till 12, sometimes 9 till 3. And that comes from a belief that they were there to support non-working parents um, to bring their children in to get this really enriching experience. It's really funny now, if you go and talk to the families of children who use those nurseries, it's very odd, because quite a lot of them are indeed parents living in poverty where one or more parents aren't working. The others are nannies. The world has changed. Um, and likewise, I was just talking to Manny um, about this as you were all coming in. We did some work for Trust for London, thank you for funding it, um, on after-school clubs. And one of the responses that we often got from head teachers was, oh, we don't really need after-school provision, after-school clubs, because that's for middle-class parents, and we're more concerned about working-class parents. I don't think that's true anymore. I think working, you know, after-school clubs are definitely not a luxury for middle-aged mums. It's a fallacy to say so. And then more toxically, I think we still get a lot of this kind of discourse in political discussions. You know, Jeremy Hunt today couldn't quite resist um, a statement about getting people on universal credit to work more hours. Um, usually we talk about getting people into work. Now we talk about getting them to work more hours. Um, and yeah, this goes back a really long way. I had a look at the um, 1997 Labour Manifesto in preparing but it's fascinating the last time i read it was when i was at school and it was decided in my primary school that we all ought to read the political manifestos in order to learn more about politics my goodness they were dull but i did learn the meanings of the word infrastructure bureaucracy and red tape so very useful to mrs very grateful to mrs wallace for teaching me this very useful context concepts they keep coming up since um, and in that New Labour Manifesto, apart from a few glancing references to pension and poverty, all of their stuff about poverty is getting people into work. And despite the fact that we all now know in this room, I am sure, that poverty now is mostly in-work poverty, I think we often still think about it or we still talk about it in public discussion as if it wasn't. And I suspect that quite a lot of people who've never been on benefits don't know how hard it is to be on benefits and not work and how much the benefit system over the last 30 odd years has really pushed people into work. 
And so the solution is not to get more people into work, because we have historically low unemployment in this country, despite having historically high rates of poverty. And as I alluded to at the start, there's loads and loads of way that we could, ways that we can reduce working poverty. We can increase the minimum wage. We've seen a modest increase today. Um, we can improve terms and conditions of people's employment so that they get better work, so they're able to do better out of it. We can make more affordable housing available. And that's a huge driver, particularly in London, that we know that the more people spend on housing, of course, the less they have left over for other things, sometimes very, very little indeed. But I think the most, you know, the kind of the solution we could put in place tomorrow is raising benefits. Um, pleased to say they have gone up with inflation today. That's great, but we can do more. So I guess it then becomes interesting to discuss what do the public think about that? Unfortunately, we have the most amazing source on this. The British Social Attitude Survey have been asking more or less the same questions about benefits since the 1980s. It's extraordinary. It's like this amazing source. Um, and because they haven't changed the questions, they're all kind of framed in the language of the 1980s, which is amazing. There's lots of stuff in there about scroungers. Um, but that does give us this ability to track public attitudes to benefits over quite a long time. They're called welfare in that survey. And what we see is this sort of counterpoint that when poverty, when it's seen that the government is being less generous with benefits, when support for benefits goes up. Um, so it climbed, support for benefits sort of climbed for quite a long way um, until about the mid-2000s, and sorry, until about the 90s, and then it started to fall. Um, because the new Labour government was perceived as being relatively generous on benefits and then people got terribly worried that everybody was cheating and so on. Um, 2010, things start getting really bad, we have the financial crash and support for benefits starts to creep up again. Um, something quite strange happened in the pandemic, I think for all of us who work with social statistics, trying to look at those statistics over the course of the pandemic, they're just absolutely bizarre. And I think one of the things that, that happens with that perceptions of benefits Thing in the pandemic is they kind of get mixed up with furlough. There were lots of different sorts of government support over that time, which make it quite hard to understand, certainly quite hard to understand when we were in it, wasn't it? What was actually going on in the relationships between those different types of support? But the latest data we have available is from 2021, and I was astonished to discover that support for redistribution of wealth um, that government should redistribute money from the rich to the poor was as high as it had been since the early 1990s, um, which was, of course, another rather, rather complicated um, time in our nation's history. Um, at Centre for London, of course, we, we only do London-specific work, that's what we like to do, um, and we don't have very much London-specific polling, but what we did do over the summer, fascinatingly, was run some focus groups um, about with people both in London and outside it about... Um, how people felt about London. And around that kind of 2010 point that we were just talking about, which is when um, support for benefits hits a low point and then starts to go up again, I coincidentally was also doing some quite similar social research, and there was this massive anger all the way across the country. People really did not like London, and they felt that London was too rich, and um, they felt that people in London had it much better than them, and if they happened to live in outer London, they tended to think that people in inner London had it better for them than them. Um, and when we did this in 2022, people really, really thought they knew that there was poverty in London. Outside London, they knew that there was poverty in London. They were very bothered about it. They didn't love everything about London, but we really didn't see that kind of antagonism between places 
that we saw before, despite the fact, I think, that politicians recently have been really trying to sow antagonism between places. So I'll end on a note, I think, of qualified optimism, that things feel really, really bad at the moment. And they are really bad. There is no getting around the fact this is a terrible time to be poor in the UK. But I think the public mood is switching. People are more supportive of supporting people who are on benefits. Interesting, the pressure the Chancellor was under to keep that up rating. People are more supportive of redistribution, which is one of the big solutions of poverty, and they are not interested in political rhetoric that seeks to divide us. So that's my reason for hope at this very difficult time. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> And we're straight on to Dave. Okay, thanks very much. I'm going to start with two stories, both of them from the London borough of Hackney, which is where I've lived continuously for the past 40 years. The first story is brand new. It was told to me by one of my daughters, who was a teacher at a Hackney primary school. That school has decided to go beyond providing education as a way of helping its children and their families, many of whom, uh, uh, many of whom do not have much money and are already finding the cost of living crisis hard going. On Sunday, the school held a special event providing free hot meals and free groceries to take away using surplus food from the school kitchens in partnership with a fruit and veg delivery box company. Staff from that company and from the school gave up their time to run the event. Over 40 people came. It was the first event of its kind the school expects larger numbers at future ones. That's what we're dealing with right now. My second story comes from the year 2011. It's also set in Hackney. At that time, the mayor of Hackney was Jules Pipe, who is now Sadiq Khan's deputy mayor for planning, regeneration and skills. One spring evening, I went to Hackney Town Hall, where the mayor and Hackney Council were setting the budget for the forthcoming financial year in the context of national government spending cuts which were hitting the poorer London local authorities particularly hard. This was the onset of austerity. In the public gallery was a small but very noisy group of hecklers, some of whom appeared to be quite drunk. They were unhappy with the budget that Mayor Pike was presenting for the council's approval, a budget which accommodated the reduction in government funding in the form of funding cuts of its own. This was a Labour-run council. Shame on you, yelled the hecklers. Shame on you for turning blue. Demand, uh, they, they demanded, uh, and there were demands uh, for Mayor Pipe to emulate an East London Labour politician from the past. Yes, the politician was George Lansbury. The hecklers wanted Mayor Pipe to defy the government, set an illegal budget and go to jail defending it. Fighting talk. But the mayor of Hackney was not impressed. Things had changed since Lansbury's day, he explained. Any attempt to copy him in the 21st century would, re would result not in heroic martyrdom, but in the government sending in a bunch of expensive accountants to run the council's finances instead of its elected politicians. Such a Whitehall intervention in the council's affairs would, the mayor said, enlarge the £44 million budget cut he was proposing to one of £114 million, which would result in, and I quote, an immediate service collapse, and his action in provoking this would amount to, and again I quote, using the most vulnerable people in this borough as a political weapon. That did not strike Mayor Pipe as a very good idea. What are the morals of these two stories? 
How do they help us answer the question, how do we eradicate poverty? Let's go back to the first story about the Hackney Primary School. It is just one example of a revival of the array of local level initiatives we saw during the pandemic across the capital and no doubt beyond it. A lot of London's councils learned a great deal during that period about working in partnership with schools, the voluntary sector, business, businesses and others to help vulnerable people more effectively. And that's something that we're going to uh, hopefully people have got the energy to do it again. And what of the second story, which is a more political one? I think it tells us that the big answers to eradicating or at least reducing poverty lie, surprise, surprise, with politics and policies. Uh, not the heckler politics of sanctimony and denunciation, I'm afraid, but the politics of winning elections and getting things done. As for policies, well, already we know quite a lot about what improves the material circumstances of people who struggle to get by. That's not going to steal other people's line. But actually, Claire stolen Manny's line before I managed to steal it. The other week at the Centre for London Annual Conference, my fellow panellist Manny reminded us that there are national government policies that have worked in the past and could work again today. I'm going to say a bit more about housing costs. Um, housing costs for people on, on incomes, uh, on, uh, whose incomes are low, an enormous issue in London, of course, can be tackled, yes, by building more homes for rent at below market levels, a proper, proper benefit system, better jobs and pay. Governments can encourage and enforce that. Um, a particular issue relating to some of the above, which often gets forgotten, I don't think it will be tonight, and it wasn't by someone else who spoke at the Centre for London conferences, the cost of childcare, uh, which is very high in London and therefore a disincentive for seeking employment, that's what you want to do, or working longer hours if that's what you want to do and can earn more money as a result. Whatever, making childcare cheaper and access to it easier would make a huge difference to an awful lot of Londoners. So all of that is easily said, is it likely to get done and when? Now I haven't yet fully digested today's autumn statement, but I sense that the news is all good and not too good. Uh, might things change in a couple of years' time after the next general election? Well, they might, but it is a harsh reality that political parties serious about winning power and not just in Britain are unlikely to get the ballot box support they need by placing too much stress on helping the poorest people in society. I think this is a grim, miserable thing we have to accept. In 1992, the famous American economist John Kenneth Galbraith published a book, a kind of long-form essay, called The, uh, the Culture of Contentment in which he described the effects of the spread of post-war affluence in Western societies. This, he said, had produced a larger proportion of people in those societies who were happy or happy enough with their material circumstances. They'd seen improvements and they didn't want to lose them. That made those people wary of any political project promising to help the poorest because they thought, perhaps correctly, that such projects would mean higher taxes and less contentment for them. They were and are unlikely to vote for political projects of that nature. And if such a political project is to get into a position where it can make changes for the better, for the poorest, it needs the votes of the contented or the relatively contented. So my advice is beware fine-sounding rhetoric. Beware the sorts of people who shout, shame on you for turning blue. Let's look at why it is hard to build more social housing, because this is another difficult one. 
It isn't only about having the money to do it, although that is obviously an enormous part of it. It's also about where you're going to build it. Land in London is quite scarce, very expensive. And when local authorities propose building social housing on land that they own, they often meet resistance, sometimes from existing social housing tenants. Almost every mechanism for producing more social housing and other forms of what we call affordable, a slippery term of course, is opposed for one reason or another. It is opposed if it involves demolishing and rebuilding at higher densities and to better standards. Infill, building in gaps between or around existing housing estates, was often promoted as an alternative to that, but in the age of COVID, this is quite often opposed because it might mean the loss of green space. What about building homes in outer London areas where land is cheaper uh, to help relieve inner London waiting lists? Well, that is resisted because it means displacement. And related to that is a huge dilemma facing housing associations with stock in expensive areas. What do you do as a housing association when a rather nice terraced house that you've owned for decades in Kensington or Westminster falls vacant? You could let it again, or you could sell it for about two million quid. And with that money, you could build, build three homes in Newham, housing more people in need. But where does that leave the long cherished mixed income communities of inner London, which is something else we all think is a good thing, I think. And of course, above all of this is the horrible stigma attached to social housing, which produces its own forms of hostility. So more social housing, is easy to demand, much more difficult to deliver. Last two minutes here, so don't worry. Uh, I want to say something about levelling up. In my opinion, that has never been about reducing poverty. It has always been mostly about the Conservative Party's desire to consolidate its hold on the so-called red wall seats in the north of England, and often presented, and indeed enacted, as a rebuke to so-called rich London, a city whose voters in those areas some, some of whom regard entirely mistakenly as their enemy. Now, I accept that there were some good things in Michael Gove's white paper, and I accept that this picture might be changing. But even so, that's what we've been dealing with. What levelling up ought to be about is dissolving, is devolving rather far more power and resources to the cities of, and regions of England, including London, so that mayors and councils can implement policies they themselves design for their specific needs. And that includes programmes for alleviating poverty, improving people's skills, health, and so on. And lastly, I'd like to touch on what I think of as the psychology of poverty. And I think I'm on thin ice here, but I'm going to risk it. Or perhaps of disadvantage or marginalisation. A kind of mindset that can inhibit, pe inhibit people from taking opportunities that London does in fact provide for helping people live richer lives in every way. So two stories to end. One was told by another school teacher, this one from, the North, from North London, about taking a group of children to see Shakespeare's Globe on a school trip. It was quite a long journey to what was clearly, in the case of at least one child, an unfamiliar part of town. What's that, he asked a teacher, pointing at a long, wide strip of water. It was, of course, the River Thames. London is a large, and in many ways, I think, a generous place. But many Londoners, perhaps especially from poorer backgrounds, lead geographically quite small lives, and I think that can play a part in perpetuating disadvantage. Last of all, I published a book earlier this year about the creation of what is now called the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Now, a big challenge for those in charge of its legacy ten years on is persuading 
uh, some local people that it truly belongs to them. And it does. It's a public park after all. And yet I still hear now and again of people who live within a few minutes of the park feeling that somehow it doesn't belong to them. It's somehow too nice, too smart, too new, even though anyone can walk into its grounds for free. And even though the price of using uh, the facilities you have to pay for is pegged at reasonable levels. There's a sort of barrier there. And I suspect that might be another example of the sort of psychology of exclusion, which is tied in with poverty, to do with self-confidence, subtle cultural barriers of one kind or another. And I think that that psychology too can help to perpetuate poverty and therefore it too needs to be eradicated. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I next turn to Manny, who I now assume is going to um, quote from all his uh, fellow panellists. It was humbling being referenced by these guys from a conference uh, a few weeks ago, but I all but sigh, because I'm going to be repeating myself, repeating both of them uh, here today. But I'm actually going to start by explaining what Trust for London is, because it might give a bit of context to why I, I, I'm here. Um, we're a, an independent charitable foundation. We have an endowment of about £300 million, a lot of money. And that means we can give out money to charities across the city that are tackling poverty and inequality, and that's what we do. And that gives us great exposure to the issues that uh, Londoners are facing and some of the ideas and, uh, that civil society is taking forward. And we also publish London's Poverty Profile, which is a great uh, resource of accessible data around poverty and inequality in London. And I, I, I sit with Claire on this question of uh, whether we can tackle poverty or not. I, I don't know, and I, I feel genuinely conflicted have doing the work I do and still sitting here and saying, I don't know. There are some days when I feel really, really optimistic and think the answer is yes. Uh, and there are other days I wake up and I think, no, how naive was I to think that we can sort of tackle this? Why is that? I mean, it's the facts that are in front of us. London has the highest poverty rate uh, in the country. And after the pandemic and now with the cost of living crisis, there are more people in poverty in this country than there have been this century, at any other point in this century. So we are under no illusions that at the moment we are heading in uh, the wrong direction. But I, what I wanted to do for you is to explain this sort of duality inside me and see where you sit, really. I'll explain why I feel optimistic at some times. Sometimes we might need to wake up in the morning uh, and feel really great. Uh, and at other times, uh, um, I'll explain why, why, you know, why I feel pessimistic. And I think the main reason I, I feel hope, I feel positive, is that, as, as I said, we know what works. P poverty is fundamentally about a lack of resources. People need money. Uh, to have a, a basic standard of living uh, and you know we need to increase their incomes and reduce their costs and we know how to do this we've heard lots already um, good jobs are absolutely essential jobs that are secure and pay at least the real living wage and give people enough hours uh, to have an adequate income Jeremy Hunter is kind of right people don't have enough hours you just can't make them find hours out of nowhere they have to have jobs that are got an employment market that provides enough hours and jobs that are secure and, 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 and stable uh, housing needs to be affordable, which does mean more social housing for those on low incomes, albeit all the challenges that Dave mentioned in terms of getting those houses built and, 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 and delivered. Um, and for those who are unable to earn enough money through work, we need a safety net that prevents them from falling into poverty. And that's a more compassionate system of social security than what we have today. So putting those three things in place, good jobs, affordable housing and a, a compassionate safety net uh, is what we need. And that relies on government, but it also relies on businesses stepping up into the place. And we saw during the pandemic with policies like furlough, how good government policy can help. It really can. Unfortunately, a lot of it then gets uh, rolled back. And we see at their best businesses helping too. 
I think half of FTSE 100 companies have signed up to the real living wage. There is, or may not, may not feel like the norm, a rise in responsible business practices around net zero, modern slavery, flexible working, uh, paying fair taxes. It, there aren't many, but there are pioneers in this space that show really how businesses can be a force, force for good. But my main actual, my main source of optimism, and you might be surprised, is, is the energy that I, I see every day in civil society and the power of uh, social movements. To take the real living wage, for example, one of the most successful campaigns civil society has had that I can think of. Uh, it happened because of a broad alliance of communities, unions, universities, religious organisations, schools and businesses working together against the odds. And it's now brought over a billion pounds back into the pockets of low-income people in London. But civil society itself can't solve the problem. But it reminds us that a better world is possible. And as Claire said about um, the public opinion, changing public opinion is achievable. Look at how concerns about poverty rose during the pandemic and how, even though they didn't convince government, campaigners pushed really hard and got public support for maintaining the £20 uplift in universal credit during the, uh, uh, the aftermath of the pandemic. So that's all of the things that really drive me and make me feel really positive about the ability to, to create change and have a world free of poverty. Um, so you may ask yourself, why, why? Why do I wake up some days after the alarm goes off and feel so, so pessimistic? Uh, and, you know, the truth is, as Dave said, so much of this needs to be led by government. It requires political will. And the first stumbling block when it comes to political will is the cost. It costs, it will cost a lot of money to tackle poverty tomorrow. I'm part of something called the Poverty Strategy Commission, which is a group of organisations, politicians, uh, think tanks, civil society organisations that across the political spectrum that come together and look into this question. What would an anti-poverty strategy for London look like? And we've calculated that if you wanted to solve poverty tomorrow, it would cost £100 billion every year. Most of that coming from government, but also from businesses and higher wages and so forth. £100 billion, that's a furlough scheme plus another £30-odd billion every single year. Uh, you'll be hard for us to push to find any politician that would think that's feasible right now. And despite what I said about businesses, uh, it doesn't take much to have my faith in businesses dented by those that have business models that rely on insecure jobs and that pay poverty wages. We've had big battles with supermarkets recently around paying, them signing up to be accredited living wage employers, which have not been uh, successful. And whilst it is easy to build public support for tackling poverty and public opinion does ebb and flow, but flows in a positive direction sometimes, it also flows in a negative direction. It's very easy to destroy. It's, I think, especially when times are hard, which kind of contradicts what you said in terms of the social attitudes survey. And I'll, I'll, I'll refer, always refer back to this, this quote by uh, George Osborne in 2013, who was the Chancellor at, at the time. His quote was, where is the fairness, we ask, for the shift worker leaving home in the dark hours of the early morning who looks up at the closed blinds of their next door neighbour sleeping off a life on benefits? That's evocative stuff. I know that because my mum, I, I, I grew up in a low-income household, in a low-income community, and my mum was a factory worker who got up at 5am, left in the dark, worked really, really hard in a really rubbish job for minimal pay. Uh, and the antidote for her, for all that toil, was the idea that she was working hard and providing for her family and, and giving her family a better life. It doesn't take a lot for someone like that to be persuaded that those who are on benefits don't deserve what they're getting from, from the state. And you don't have to find hard to find politicians that will lean on that sentiment in order to justify inaction on poverty or, or penalising the poorest, um, particularly those who are unemployed, and particularly those who are unemployed and have children. So the truth is, if we want a society that's free from poverty, we need to have political leaders that have the strength to shape and sometimes go against public opinion. And I think that is a big ask, as Dave said, and perhaps our expectations are unrealistic. So that is ultimately why I'm unsure 
whether we can tell, solve any solve poverty anytime soon. And I want to see what you think. Thank you. Um, I'm going to try and take a slightly longer term perspective. And I want to start in uh, 1884. In 1884, um, a pressure group called the Fabian Society was formed. And the first thing it did was to publish a tract which was called Why Are the Many Poor? Remarkably, it sold 100,000 copies. It asked a series of other questions like, can we or can we not do something about it? Essentially, we are in this session asking exactly the same question that was asked 150 years ago. And the fact that we're doing that tells us quite a lot about social progress uh, over the last few decades. I just want to quickly look at some of these uh, long-term trends in poverty and inequality since the war. Britain achieved the lowest point for poverty, and here I'm talking about relative poverty, not absolute poverty, um, uh, in the late 1970s. Um, in, that, in that same period, um, we also had peak equality. We have never done better in the late 1970s. This was the high point of egalitarianism, and it was a, a significant historic achievement. It was very short-lived. Uh, since that point, uh, everything has gone into reverse. The level of poverty uh, over the last 40 years has more or less doubled, more than doubled for children. Uh, the level of inequality uh, has jumped. If we look at the poorest fifth in Britain, compared with the poorest fifth in other rich nations, uh, they are between 20 and 30% better off in those countries uh, than they are in Britain. And the main reason for that is because they are less unequal. And when you have highly unequal societies, uh, which essentially means that the poorest have an you know, inadequate share of the national cake, uh, then you get very low, very low living standards. Um, so why is it we've had these remarkable reversals? I think th there's lots of reasons, but the primary reason is a shift in political and governing philosophy. The philosophy that drove us to uh, peak equality and, and the low point for poverty was the application of an egalitarian philosophy. Egalitarians had won the long battle for ideas. Uh, but then we, in the, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, we completely shifted to an anti-egalitarian philosophy. Let's take Keith Joseph. Keith Joseph, who was um, uh, a key architect of this anti-egalitarian strategy, and of course hugely influential uh, on Margaret Thatcher, he said in the mid-1970s, True conservatives must campaign against egalitarianism. And what's happened over the last uh, 40 years, and in essence, we've had the application, the political application of that idea. Uh, so we've had um, a much harder public and political attitudes towards those on low incomes. Uh, we've had a steady 
uh, weakening of the social protection system with cuts in benefits, and we've had the rise of a much more coercive state policy towards uh, benefit systems. So since 2010, uh, since 2012, the last decade, over 7 billion sanctions have been issued uh, against, uh, against claimants, which basically means for a minimum of three months they've lost their benefits altogether. That gives you some, sorry, 7, seven million. So you see, that gives you some sense of um, uh, the way in which uh, social policy over the last 40 years has essentially been guided more by the harshness of the poor law of the 19th century than it has by uh, the beverage, much more generous principles uh, recommended by beverage and applied from 19, 1945. We've basically gone backwards in terms of our philosophy. Um, so can we reverse this? Can we cut poverty uh, to a significant extent? Uh, and to do so, we obviously have to reverse uh, this political philosophy of the last, uh, uh, of the last um, 40 years. Um, now, there, there is a school of thought that says if you define poverty as relative, you can't eliminate it. Um, John Humphreys, um, uh, BBC uh, on the Today programme, asked a leading social scientist about 15 years ago when they were discussing this issue, and he said, well, well, if you define poverty as relative, you're basically always going to have the poor with you. Ian Duncan Smith, when he became uh, Secretary of State for Working Pensions in 2010, kept making exactly the same point. And then in The Scotsman, you know, the leading uh, newspaper in Scotland, basically said, if you define poverty as relative, then you can say with mathematical certainty that you can't eliminate it. Now, all this is completely wrong. It's perfectly possible to abolish relative poverty. So if you, if you, if you set a poverty line, I mean, one of the state's definitions of poverty is 60% of the middle income. Uh, and at the moment, we have, you know, between 25 and 30% falling below that level. It's perfectly possible to raise incomes of all those below 60% to just above 60%, and you will eliminate poverty. Uh, so, um, you know, that is completely wrong. Having said that, although it's in principle uh, possible to abolish poverty, it's not easy. So the lowest point we've achieved in Britain in, in the late 1970s was 14% for ch children. Uh, if we take uh, other richer countries, if we take Sweden, has a child poverty rate of 11%. That's the lowest in Europe. If you take uh, Finland, it's 13%. The average in the EU is 24%. In Britain, it's 31%. Uh, uh, so it, it won't be easy. But let's look. Supposing we took a modest target, let's say a half. Let's say we wanted to cut poverty in Britain amongst children um, by a half. So bringing it down to below 15%. There are lots of ways of, of doing it. But essentially, we need to do two things. The first thing we need to do is increase the income 
the income base uh, in a way below which nobody would fall. We, we, need, we need a kind of plimsoll line for incomes. The second thing is that to achieve that, we have to raise the share of national income that goes uh, to that group. Now, there are all sorts of ways of increasing that, that, that income floor and by increasing the share. But I just want to look at one way of doing it, which is through a particular model of universal basic income. Now, universal basic income is a highly controversial idea. People, I mean, it's a Marmite issue. People are going to love it or, or, the, or they hate it, although it has been coming up the, the political agenda recently. Um, well, we, I've done some research for a think tank called Compass, and we've produced a report that shows that even a very modest uh, basic income, uh, plimsoll line, uh, which would pay £41 for a child, uh, £63 for an adult, and £190 for a pensioner, so everybody would get that. This is guaranteed, no questions asked, it would go automatically to everybody. Uh, the effect of such a scheme uh, would cut child poverty to 11%. That's 3% lower than it was in the 1970s. In other words, it, we would achieve an historic low in Britain. Uh, the, the same with pensioners, the pensioner level of poverty would halve. Such a scheme would be expensive because you'd be paying everybody those sums. So the gross cost would be, would be over 200 billion. That's about 9% of the size of the economy. But, it's per, but uh, there will be lots of savings. So you, you would abolish child benefit. You would no longer need that. You'd abolish the basic pension because these will be replacing it. There would be significant savings. And uh, you would still need some modest increase in taxes, you'd need to increase all the standard rate, all the rates of income tax by 3p in the pound. And for that, you get the lowest level of poverty we've had in Britain, together with all the other advantages that you get with a basic income. Guaranteed, much less means testing, uh, real uh, security. Uh, so um, that's an illustration what, what, what this scheme is effectively does is to um, reintroduce the progressive power of the tax benefit system. What's happened over the last 40 years is the progressive power of the benefit system has been fantastically eroded because benefits have fallen and taxes have become much less pro progressive. This would reintroduce the progressive power of the tax. I just want to say one last thing, and that is that if we, if we really want to tackle poverty, it's worth going back to 1945, and indeed the Beveridge Report. It is, after all, the 80th anniversary of the Beveridge Report this month. And um, uh, what happened then is we introduced, or, or you know, what was introduced was a series of very pro-equality policies. You know, a decent benefit system, a progressive income tax, family allowances, and um, the, the NHS. What we need to do today is do exactly the same. Uh, we need to create instruments that are relevant today uh, which achieve the same ends. And a basic income floor would be one of those instruments. Sorry, I've probably gone on a bit, but sorry. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ 
ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super-rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. So to the last words, over to you, Ruth. Okay, thank you. And thank you very much for the invitation um, to contribute to this panel on what is really a very important topic uh, of how we eradicate or at least reduce poverty at a time when poverty, and in particular deep poverty, notably among some racialized minorities, is worsening. And apologies for any re repetition, but it is the penalty of going last. Um, the first step has to be a clear government commitment to an anti-poverty strategy across government and at all levels of government that aims to prevent poverty as well as ameliorate it. The last gov Labour government's UK child poverty strategy uh, was torn up by the Conservative government so that, as underlined by the Social Mobility Commission uh, last year, England is the only nation in the UK without a strategy to address child poverty. Such a strategy needs to address both the material and what are called, uh, well not that I, but what has been called the psychosocial dimensions of poverty, and therefore embrace not just a politics of redistribution that addresses socioeconomic injustices and the link between poverty and inequality developed by Stuart, but also what are called the politics of recognition and respect, uh, grounded in a human rights approach to poverty that addresses cultural or symbolic injustice to borrow uh, the concept from Nancy Fraser, the, the uh, political theorist. This would tackle what the current UN rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights termed povertyism um, in a recent report to the UN General Assembly, which called for the prohibition of discrimination on grounds of socioeconomic disadvantage. He's reported as telling the General Assembly that poverty will never be eradicated while povertyism is allowed to fester, restricting access to education, housing, employment, and social benefits. So as we've heard, education, housing, employment, and social benefits all have to be part of any anti-poverty strategy for those of working age and their children, and then I'll confine myself to that group. I'll focus on benefits, but a few words on these other important elements first. The government, as, we've, as Claire said, tends to respond to any question on poverty that work is the best route out of it. Now, that, that may be the case for many people um, able to take paid work, but it ignores those for whom paid work is not a realistic option uh, and the growing problem of, we've heard about, in-work poverty. Even though the link between poverty and low pay is not as strong as is often assumed, Certainly a key element in any anti-poverty strategy uh, must be a labour market that provides good work with decent pay and security and opportunities for progression without discrimination, together with the necessary flexibility for those with caring responsibilities, mainly still women, and for disabled people. Much more has to be done to tackle the barriers to employment some groups face, which involves, for instance, as we've heard, childcare, but also things like transport policy. 
Tackling education inequalities from the early years upwards is, of course, important. What is sometimes overlooked as part of this agenda uh, are the costs of the school day, which can aggravate um, the inequalities. Some of these costs derive from government policy, for example, the exclusion of 800,000 children on universal credit from entitlement to free school meals. Um, hunger does not make for effective learning. Others, such as CPAG has um, demonstrated with a number of schools, can be addressed to some extent by poverty-aware schools. Uh, and I think one you talked about, Dave, in your first example was an ex a poverty-aware school. Uh, so that children in poverty are not excluded from certain subjects or extracurricular activities because of the cost. Other drivers are outside the influence of schools, notably homelessness or poor or overcrowded housing conditions or cold homes or mouldy homes. More generally, the cost of housing, particularly private sector rents, has to be tackled rather than leaving it to housing benefit to pick up partially the pieces. And that brings me to social security benefits, which have a key role to play in the eradication of poverty, as we've already heard, both out of work and in work, and in any politics of redistribution. Analysis by case here at the LSE has shown the positive impact on child poverty levels that the increases in social security, including tax credit under the last Labour government had, and also the importance of income levels to children's outcomes. The social security system fails to provide Genuine security after a decade of cuts in real value, so-called reforms that have penalised children in particular, notably the benefit cap and two-child limit, and that have spelled a more punitive form of conditionality through the use of sanctions that's, uh, that um, Stuart talked about. The introduction of universal credit, which requires a five-week wait, is assessed and paid monthly, and is subject to deductions including to cover advanced payments uh, made to cover that five-week wait, has aggra have aggravated the insecurity experienced by people on low incomes. And this is the context for today's um, autumn statement, which thankfully is um, at least increasing um, benefits in line with inflation. Um, and also in uprating the benefit cap for the first time since uh, the current level was set in 2016, in line with inflation, but we don't know inflation from when yet. Because many of those affected by social security cuts were already in poverty, the impact of these cuts is perhaps more visible in the increase in deep poverty than in the headline numbers in poverty. And any anti-poverty strategy has to address the depth as well as the extent of poverty. And that also means including <coughs> asylum seekers, refugees and migrants without recourse to public funds in any anti-poverty strategy. So the first priority for an incoming government will have to be to make good the worst cuts made over the past decade, in particular abolition of the benefit cap and the two-child limit, which are seen as key drivers of child poverty. There are also a number of changes needed to universal credit prior to longer-term reform and an increase in carers' allowance, which remains below uh, the level of equivalent benefits. Longer-term reform must address the fundamental question of the adequacy of benefits so that they provide sufficient to allow life in dignity, uh, so called, uh, as called for by the, I, the uh, ILO. And it must put the security back into social security. 
which I'd argue means reversing the long-term trend toward means testing and ever greater conditionality um, and, and use of sanctions. And some form of basic income as proposed by Stuart, complemented by decent support for disabled people, could offer the way forward here. So finally, to return to the psychosocial dimension of poverty and a rather different perspective, I think, from uh, Dave's, um, and a politics of recognition and respect, to quote from the International Study of Shame and Poverty led by Robert Walker, a consideration of recipient dignity is crucial to the longer term success of any anti-poverty effort. This requires a cultural shift in the way that benefits and services are often provided one which has been taken on board by the Scottish Government in its approach to Social Security. And this has included the development of experience panels that have provided the space for the expertise born of experience to have a voice. And one of the few encouraging developments, and this is where I take a, a bit of hope from, and, and actually you've funded some of them, I think, and, uh, um, uh, in recent years, has been the growing recognition, in some quarters at least, the importance of listening to people with experience of poverty. And examples include the Apple Collective, addressing poverty with lived experience, who met the other week with the all-party parliamentary group on poverty to tell us about digital poverty. And the grassroots poverty action group, supported by Joseph Roundtree Foundation, who published a blog the other week titled, Lived Experience is Key to Designing Compassionate Policy Responses and the COVID now changing realities research project <coughs> that's enabled participants on benefit to speak out about their experiences and the changes that they would like to see. Such participation, according to the UN, lies at the heart of a human rights approach to poverty. So in conclusion, having sketched out what I think are key elements of what is needed in any anti-poverty strategy, I'll just finish by underlining that ultimately uh, and this is a point that, that Manny made, uh, the eradication or even serious reduction of poverty is going to require political will. Thank you very much all. So we now have um, a bit over half an hour for um, questions. Um, and I'm going to uh, try and take a mixture of questions from the floor um, and um, see if there are any questions um, from our um, online participants. I've got some already here. So yes, so hands up uh, when you when you um, get the mic. Can you wait wait for the mic? Um, we'll start here um, and say who you are and where you're from. Can we take it through a few at a time because otherwise it. How? Yeah, there, there seem to be a lot. Okay, so we'll take yeah we'll take uh, we'll take three at a time yeah. and then um, uh, either you just see if it's for you or. Um, uh, you can indicate if you want a particular person to answer, um, or I'll select if people aren't indicating. So. Okay, uh, my name's Henrietta Lynch. I'm currently not working. Um, my uh, question is about, I'm going to look at a, a kind of a case study, which is the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, which apparently for many years have been hoarding a lot of money at the same time as making uh, massive austerity cuts and not providing uh, social housing and social care that is actually, you would think, would be obliged to do. What, what mechanisms do we actually have which uh, are in place, probably none at all, which uh, say that there is a right 
be housed, there is a right to provision of uh, social care, etc. I mean, there's this bit of a complex history in, or in Kensington and Chelsea at the moment with Grenfell and everything. But. Thank you. And we'll take three, as I said, there's one next up here, and then we'll move um, up. Um, hi there, my, my name is Santiago and I'm a Master of Public Policy from uh, Oxford University. And uh, I, I had uh, two small questions in mind. Uh, the first one is, um, do you think that uh, the poorest and, uh, you know, and, and, and children right now, uh, are, are they being trained uh, 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 in pertinent skills uh, for uh, what the future labour market uh, uh, will be? And considering uh, the uh, technology revolution, and um, and uh, the incidence that this might have uh, in in keeping on the cycle of poverty, and the second one is, um, what what do you think about uh, uh, the possible effects of raising uh, uh, the the minimum wage um, if 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 productivity is not uh, being uh, uh, raised as well? Uh, and I'm talking about redundancies, the possibility of redundancies, the possibility of uh, uh, inflation. How would you how would you actually deal with that? Thank you. Um, I'm trying to not take more. I'll come back to you. I'll try and not take more from the front row in the first go. There was somebody. Um, yes, in the, in the in the raincoat there, in the sort of. Yeah, that's you. Who just turned around? You. Yes. Yes. I think it's a raincoat. <laughs> my eyesight isn't the greatest. Yeah, it's one of my favourite coats. I must say. Um, thank you, that was very fascinating. Uh, my name is Javan and I work for the Labour Party. Um, my question is around um, how, I suppose, uh, the, the kind of structural political economy that underpins a lot of the radical reform, well, I, I wouldn't see it as radical, but the necessary reform that we need to see going further. What is that underpinning political economy and how do we actually achieve it? Because I think under this government, under a consensus, for the last 10 years where we've seen quite an aggressive lurch to the right and we saw that with the mini budget and everything else it seems quite difficult um, in trying to re-establish a kind of structural uh, basis as to how we um, achieve the eradication of poverty thanks very much so um we'll start with those three um while we can still remember them so i wondered whether either dave or manny want to take the first one um about hoarding. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not very well qualified to, to respond to that. Um, I, um, Kensington and Chelsea, I'll, I'll make some general points, some, some points that might be of general interest to, about Kensington and Chelsea, if, which I don't think will actually answer your question, but they might be of interest. I mean, one, one thing to note is that since Grenfell actually became a completely different local authority under the same name, well, Everybody got cleared out, didn't they? The leadership got cleared out. They brought in uh, officers from other boroughs, so it was run in a very different, different way. Um, I think that and this is, puts me in the perilous position of sounding a bit sorry, feeling a bit sorry for them. But in terms of uh, social housing, which was a what I went on a, on about a bit in, in my speech, there is an argument that it's actually, actually if, you're in, if, you, if you are a local authority for a very, very wealthy area where land is very scarce, Kensington Chelsea is a very high density borough in terms of its built environment. Land is very, very scarce and incredibly expensive. This, is one of, this, this captures one of the dilemmas about delivering social housing that I was talking about. So I had a conversation 
with uh, one of the old regime about housing policy. And he made the point, it was quite difficult to counter. People, uh, he says, you know, people say that they were being criticized for building, I think they were building some, or financing some social housing outside of the borough for some of the people on their waiting list. And, and I said, but that's not good, is it? You know, and are people happy about that and so on? And he said, well, okay, you can have the argument about it, but this is some of the most, what I'm, what I'm in charge of is some of the most expensive real estate on earth, you know? And if I, you know, to, and, and there isn't much land going, you know, and I could, and, and, and if I'm going to, if I'm going to acquire some land to build some social land, indeed other kinds of affordable housing, uh, what's the best value for money in terms of housing, housing people? And it's probably to, to build the houses somewhere else, because you could build more of them and house more people. So I'm just saying these are the kinds of dilemmas and really, really difficult choices. People, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a climate a few years ago. Oh, I don't want to hear about your difficult choices, you know, and blah blah. It's a bit like Michael Gove, who was saying, uh, I think we've heard enough from experts, although he didn't really mean that, but it's that sort of thing. So, but I think there are there there are really I think London poses particular difficulties for for building more uh, social and affordable homes, particularly the most expensive bits of it. So that didn't answer your question, but maybe it was of some use to some people in the room. I mean, local authorities across the city could certainly make better decisions in how they run services and allocate resources. But as Dave says, I think maybe after ten years of austerity, the campaigners. Uh, against local authority decisions have, have lost the will really to believe that things can be different because uh, um, of the lack of resources and that line coming back. Actually, I, if, if I could just yeah. make another sort of general point about what local authorities maybe have have learned during or, or let's say some of them have learned during during the pandemic and, and so Georgia Gould who's the chair of London councils which is the cross the cross party body that represents all the London made a very eloquent speech uh, a while back about how having to having to sort of go out and find people, often with the help of the voluntary sector, local voluntary sector, when people were in need or couldn't get out to, to, to shop and what have you. A lot of lessons have been learned for that. Now, I don't know whether that's been learned in Kensington and Chelsea or not, but I think it has in, in quite a few London boroughs, which is perhaps one thing to be hopeful about for the future. So, yep. so I've digressed in several different ways, so I'll be quiet. Thank you. I'm going to move us on because there's, um, so we had the, the second was a pair of questions, one about um, te 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 technological capacity, I think, of response, and also about um, uh, what happens, what, what effects does the minimum wage have if it doesn't, if productivity doesn't in also increase. Um, so who would like to take that? Should I phrase that? Okay. Yes. Um, so I think, I mean, it's very hard to give an, an answer to that very broad question. And of course, it's also very hard now to know what to teach children to do, because we don't quite know what sort of world um, they'll be growing up into. And that's actually been the case for quite a long time. An awful lot of my friends do jobs that our school career service doesn't really know anything about. I think to take the broader point, there is a huge, um, there is a huge role for education in addressing poverty. We must not fall into the trap that it's technical and vocational education for the poor 
and um, the pleasure of studying history for the love of it for middle-class students like me. You know, that, that's not the solution, but te teaching skills for the workforce very much is the solution. I think the caveat to that is that schools absolutely cannot do everything. And Dave gave us a really inspiring example of work that's being done in Hackney, which it must be said, but the teachers were not being paid, I would yeah, expect. That's true, yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes in this country we place an awful lot of weight on our schools in terms of their ability both to influence young people's own lives and to influence um, our chances society. Children only spend the minority of their time in school. I would argue that our absolute focus must be on supporting both the schools and those children to have home lives that are conducive to them being able to work properly because no school can solve the fact that a child is hungry when they turn up to learn. I'll move us on, I think. Oh, do you want to... Uh, the, just the, the minimum wage. You're going to pick up the minimum wage. The minimum, minimum wage yeah. one, because actually, um, I don't think it's fair, really, uh, for low-income people to have to prove that they are more productive to get a higher wage. And that burden should be on everyone, including those on higher incomes. And their incomes have gone skyrocketed without having to prove the, the sort of same thing. And, and you can just take the example of the Amazon warehouse worker who is being guided by an algorithm which makes them incredibly efficient and have to work really, really hard. Amazon can afford to pay them more, I think, uh, is the answer. Yeah. So there was a, a question about the, um, the political economy. Who would like to take that one? I'm happy to, I'm happy to have a go at that. I, I, I mean, I think th that is um, possibly the most critical question about um, how we're going to shape the future. We've had a political economy, you know, sort of neoliberalism, pro-market, small state, anti-poor, anti-equality philosophy over the last 40 years. Um, on the, you know, the, because the architects of that said it would make us all richer faster. So, you know, we create a, a very vibrant economy um, and high productivity, high wage economy. It's done the opposite. It's created a low wage, low productivity, low growth economy with a very high level of poverty. And, and what, what, what's happened is that, you know, the, uh, a small business, you know, elite, a small business and financial elite have effectively taken advantage of the license given to get rich as part of this neoliberal philosophy, not to build a stronger economy and create wealth, but to enrich themselves uh, at the expense of others. Uh, at the expense of wages, at the expense of small businesses, and quite often at the expense of uh, taxpayers. Um, so, um, and uh, what's the, the economists distinguish between productive activity or wealth creation and uh, extraction or appropriation? And what's happened in the last 40 years is there's been a kind of switch. Uh, from production and value creation to value extraction and appropriation of existing resources. Um, and that's the source of this you know, huge enrichment. I mean, you've had the biggest personal wealth boom uh, you know, in the last 40 years, even than, the, in, than in the late 19th century. Um, and so we really do need to change this political philosophy. We need to create a society that creates wealth in the right sort of areas. We need to create a political economy that serves well-being, uh, that serves the interests. I mean, what we've created is essentially a, a 
model of luxury capitalism in which, you know, such a high, high proportion of uh, resources are geared not to meeting everyday needs like social housing, like better schools, like, you know, improving the health system, but, you know, being spent uh, on things that uh, are actually damaging for the wider economy. Um, so if I can come in there, I think the yeah. question was though the how. So you all seem to be still diagnosing the problem rather than thinking about the solution. So I think that if I'm right, I think the question was about the how. Um, yes. Uh, so I wondered if we oh, could sorry. just if we could just sort of I wondered if Claire, did you have anything to add on this? Oh gosh, that puts me you on the spot. <laughs> to put you on the spot. Yeah. Well, in the interest of getting some. Um, it. I think there is, and we talked about it already. I think it's very hard to get public support for big structural change, and you know. We still, I think, bear the scars of the Cold War in terms of this sort of idea of the battle between capital and com capitalism and communism, which is not helpful to those of us who are making an argument for compassionate solutions to poverty. Because you get accused of being a communist, even worse in America. Um, but, but that said, I think, I think there is a growing desire for compassion in politics, and I think we can we can build on that, and that's probably. I think the how probably has more to do with talking about people than it has to do with talking about systems. And I realise that is infinitely easier said than done. Um, but I know I'm talking to somebody who's working for, for a political party but seeking power. Thank you. Um, so there's, there's, there's lots we could probably um, enlarge on that. I've got some questions um, uh, from the on online. Quite a lot of them are about Marmite. Um, or universal birth, but basic income. So I think we'll take those sort of effectively together. So, so, so um, Samuel Meyer from the um, Federal University of Minas Gerais in Brazil um, asks about um, why um, universal basic income would be better than one that's targeted to those that are below, um, uh, rather than, yes, means effectively a means-tested, because means-tested um, or targeted approach would be cheaper. So is it because of greater a buy-in, um, and there was um, a further question, a related question, um, about um, what about the impact of um, universal basic income on um, inflation? Does that not counteract the potential benefits? So I think we're all thinking a lot more about inflation than we probably were um, a year ago. Um, and another question was, where would the additional funds come from? So um, what would receive less? So how would it, how would it be paid for? Um, and for further one, I'll take them all together because uh, do justice to our, to our um, uh, um, online um, uh, attendees and also this question, that there have been various trials um, of universal basic income, but these haven't been more widely rolled out. Um, and is this because it's too expensive or because they're not so successful? Um, so what, uh, if they've been successful, surely we'd be seeing it happening much more widely. So um, I think you both talked about these first, 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 first so basic I, income. Do you want to, do you want to start, start Yes. Stuart to do the technical stuff. Um, why, 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 why would it be better than a targeted approach? I mean, I'll, I'll think of that. I mean, we've had the, the targeted approach is what we've had for the last, and it's got more and more targeted and less and less um, uh, effective in tackling poverty. Um, universal credit was supposed to be the answer, you know, great simplified, and it, and it is not simple for those who have to claim it at all. Um, the, 
the reason that I, I actually have come to support, and, and funnily enough, I mean, I've actually sat on the fence for quite a long time, so I'm sort of, perhaps I, I both like and don't like Marmite, but um, it provides a security that means testing can't provide, because you, it's not going to be taken away because your income fluctuates or whatever. And um, so that, for me, is one critical uh, argument in favour of, of, of universal basic income rather than targeting. Um, there isn't a take-up problem, which there is with means-tested benefits, and it's paid on an individual basis, and that is very important from women's perspective, um, that the money goes direct to each member, each adult member of the household, uh, and it is very, very difficult to do that through means-testing. Um, so... I, but I will leave you to answer the questions about where, because I mean, Stuart has shown how it can be done, partly through using tax allowances, tax reliefs, which are, are, are not a progressive way of distributing resources. Um, I mean, there's a lot of money that is already being spent through tax reliefs and allowances, and is spent in a way which is certainly not targeting on those on lowest incomes. I'll hand it to you. I mean, I'll answer the last question first, which is, you know, we've had all these trials, but, um, you know, it hasn't been rolled out anywhere. I think it's worth, you know, again, looking at, the, looking at the, the 1940s. All the policies that were implemented in the 1940s had been debated for decades. So the idea of, of a universal health service, the idea of family allowances, um, the idea of free education. These were all ideas. And the minimum national minimum wage is another idea. I mean, the low pay unit, which was a branch of the Child Poverty Action Group, was set up in 1971, campaigned for 30 years for minimum wage before it came in. So radical ideas very often take quite a long time um, before uh, governments are willing to implement them. So I, I think we're in the kind of stage with basic income that a minimum wage was, say, in the 90s, or the idea of family allowances was in the 1930s. It's an idea that um, is beginning to rise up the political agenda, and, and um, it feels to me that once one country goes, uh, they will implement, uh, it'll, it'll, you know, uh, other countries will follow. I mean, it's perfectly possible to implement a very simple, basic, not particularly expensive basic income scheme. Um, uh, with, I mean, for example, you could, the tax allowance, which costs 120 billion, um, you could convert that and only benefits people who are earning over you know, 10,000 a year, doesn't help the unemployed, um, and it's particularly beneficial to the highest earners. You could convert that into a flat rate payment, and that would be worth um, about £50 per person. It would be highly progressive, um, and that's quite a simple measure. And it's very interesting. That's exactly what happened in the 1970s when, when family allowances and child tax allowances were converted uh, into child benefit. Basically, they abolished tax allowances and used the money, and abolished family allowances and used the money to pay child benefit. And it's very interesting then because the unions were completely opposed to it because it was their members, because you know, it was mainly a male working, working force still even then. Their members were going to lose out 
and women, because of, because it went to women, uh, were, were, were going to um, be the beneficiaries. So I think we, um, you can't introduce basic income until you've had a national debate. Uh, it's too big an issue. And, uh, so I do think we need, um, it feels to me that we're creeping towards it. And it wouldn't surprise me after another decade we'll get some form of basic income. But look, child benefit is a basic income for children. It's a universal guaranteed, not, you know, a payment. Uh, and it's fallen in value by 25% in the last, you know, decades. Um, you could increase it by 25%, and that would, that would be a form of basic income, which would help. And all, all we're talking about with basic income is extending that concept uh, to adults. Um, in terms of the, the cost, um, basic income is expensive. All universal benefits are expensive, but we've got to get a better balance between universalism and means testing, and the balance at the, at the moment is, is too far in favour of means testing. I'm going to hold you there. Yeah, I mean, sorry. Getting another round in, but yes, okay. I think yes. So, 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 uh, public debate maybe on the on this. So we have. A, I'm going to take another round. We've got a lot of people wanting question, wanting to ask questions. Um, so I'm going to try to be equitable. So we have a um, person the uh, blue cardigan, blue shirt here. Um, first, I know. I know you're trying to get my attention. I will come to you. Hi. Thank you to the. Thank you to the panel for um, your insights. Um, so my question is maybe a little bit con controversial, but I, with my social um, policies background, I also lean towards political will and power being you know, a barrier to a lot of these issues. Um, but I wondered to what extent do you think perhaps um, our inability to shape and influence political will is connected to Britishness, um, and could that be one of the reasons why perhaps we're, you know, further behind our European counterparts? So this ability to, you know, grin and bear it and um, keep mm -hmm. calm and carry on. Um, do you think that hasn't um, that kind of translates into how public institutes don't really influence um, politics? Um, and that's not to discredit civil society here, but just how can we make sure that? happens on a larger scale? Interesting question. Um, so, here? Okay. You don't want to ask a question anymore. Well, I don't want to So, you have a question or you don't have a question? So, we'll take the question from here. We'll take, I'm taking three questions, three or four questions. And then I'm going to take one from over here, because I haven't looked over this side so far. Hello. My name is Prakrad. I'm pursuing MSc International Social and Public Policy. And thank you for the session. So I just wanted to ask about universal basic income, as you mentioned. I want to know about, I'm like. I'm not going to take any yeah, more so questions my, about universal basic income, I'm afraid. So just, a, just a different aspect. Just a different aspect of UBI. So I just wanted to ask. Can I? No, I'm not going to take any more questions. We've done a lot on basic income, so I want to get some more range to get our speakers in. I'm sorry about that. Uh, we'll have, we'll, there'll be plenty of chances to talk after the event when we go into the reception, but for the que questions now, I'm going to move over here. I'm sorry about that. So no, no basic income, please. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we'll talk about it outside. Good evening. Thank you. My, my name is Domingo Lapadula. Uh, if we see poverty, we can think of it as a, as a set 
And on that set, well, we have a lot of people that are, are coming in, and a little bit we talked about it, but there, there will also, at any time, a, a lot of people coming out. Has anyone, you know, studied that and tried to take uh, learnings out of that perspective? Thank you. Um, and uh, um, so, yeah, I'll take two more. There's one there and one here, because I know you've been trying to get in for a long while as well. So I will take yours as the, as the final question. Thank you so much. My name is Prakar. I'm from UCL, uh, doing Master in Public Administration. Uh, I'm here. Yeah. So talking about the resources which you were saying about, like, we can have, if, if we have resources, we can dis redistribute to, uh, to counter poverty. But talking about the energy crisis, like, in uh, UK only, they have more than 50% of energy which is being countered from the outside sources. So is there any, like, thing to, to tackle this resources problem? Okay, and uh, thank you for being so patient. This will be the last, the last question, and then ask for some swift responses. To have the last question, I suppose, uh, and thank you to the panelists all for uh, doing uh, justice to George's concern yeah. about uh, poverty. I wanted to raise an issue which no one's talked about yet, which is um, the relationship between health inequalities and poverty. Um, the Marmot report back in uh, 2010, I think, uh, suggested that if we tackled health inequalities in this country, it, it's costing over 80 billion pounds. Um, so I wonder whether we need to look at the thing, these kinds of things in a total place uh, structure and think about all the ways in which poverty impacts upon the public purse in other ways and therefore might be Okay, thank you very much. So, um, Dave, chip in on. To, which one are you going to chip in on? I'm going to, I'm going to address in a very uh, superficial way the first question because yeah. I, I think it's very interesting. And I don't think it's controversial. I think it's a very interesting thing. There is a thing about stoicism, isn't there, uh, which is a sort of you know, regarded as a bit of a sort of British thing that we don't, uh, that we don't, we mustn't grumble, mustn't grumble, you know, mustn't. Uh, there's a, there's still quite a lot of that about, and I, and one of during the uh, debate about uh, the uh, European Union referendum, I think I, I, I recall somebody, uh, just a, a sort of ordinary member of the public, so to speak. Uh, vox pops by a TV presenter saying, you know, well, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Are you worried that people's standard of living is going to deteriorate as a result of this of this outcome? And he said, well, you know, I think it will do us all a bit of good to be a bit worse off for a while. You know? So we've become a bit pampered and spoiled, you know, and it's it's all got a bit too easy for us. So um, I think that there is a, a sort of mentality which you could sort of say is a a, a strand of Britishness, if you like. I mean, there are lots of competing and different sorts of Britishness, I, I think. But, but there is that one uh, that don't make a fuss. We've had it a bit too good for too long. Uh, and that maybe feeds into, uh, there's a lot of shirkers and, you know, look at him, look at him, he's asleep and I'm out working and, and all of that. So I think you have a point there. Thank you. 
and come back on a couple of things. So, I mean, Which one did you want to take? I'll take that one because actually, the world I'm from, the philanthropic world, and you mentioned civil society, is rooted in Victorian attitudes towards poverty. And at the basic heart of that is the great and the good come round a table and decide what's good for poor people. Uh, and it really isn't about empowering communities. It's about who has the who who deserves to have uh, access to power and who doesn't have deserve to access to power. And I think that is something we really really want to address. And on on, on the, the mention you mentioned about um, paper about uh, health inequality, but you actually were talking about how government organises its money and, and pays for things and think about how that might might benefit the economy going forward. And this is this this is despairing. For example, with welfare how much money from government goes into the pockets of private landlords rather than building social homes. That is absolutely the epitome of the problem we have with how government organises itself and money, and it despairs me that we can't fix it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, wasn't there a slogan, uh, benefits to bricks or bricks and benefits? That yeah. I'm, I'm they lost. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I'm going to move Sorry. to Ruth to ask how she can address the um, what can we learn from people who move out of poverty as well as those who move into poverty. Yeah. Although first I would just say that I, I, I actually think, I don't think the sort of mustn't grumble is that dominant anymore in Britain. And, and, if, and, if this, and if this was the reason then why is poverty so great in the United States? Because Americans are not people who put up with things. So I, I, I don't think that is, the, but, but, it, but it's a really good question and which raises big questions about different countries, but um, there isn't time to go into it, I'm afraid. Um, yes, yes, there's been a lot of research done in talks called the dynamics of poverty. Um, and um, mainly, well, to begin with, it was very much quantitative research, and it showed very much, you know, uh, some of it done here at the LSE, um, and in terms of the role of employment, um, marriage, um, you know, various, various factors that may, may take people out of poverty uh, or not, as the case may be, um, education, clearly the role of education, but. And, and very, very important. And what it, what it showed also is a lot that people move in and out, but not very far, and you can fall back very easily, particularly in the sort of precarious labour market that we have today. So um, it, it's, it's a rubber band that doesn't stretch very far. Um, but what's also interesting is more recently research, qualitative research done, longitudinal qualitative research, which has shown kind of the, what's involved for people. So particularly, thinking particularly of a study of lone mothers uh, who got into employment and the hard work that involves for both them and their children uh, is not all an easy kind of, you know, getting out of poverty is not that easy. It, it can take its toll, including in terms of mental and physical health. Thank you very much for that. Does anybody want to take the energy... Um, situation question. No volunteers for that. Before we wrap up, I'm, I'm not sure anybody's, we'll have to take that one I think outside because I'm not sure everyone was feeling quite qualified to in, engage with that question just now. So um, we are just about out of time. There are lots of um, clearly stimulating possibilities for um, further discussion as well as universal ba basic income. I think also the role of education, um, how government spends its money um, and um, 
uh, and, 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 and the nature of, of, of the character and the, and the um, psycho psychosocial aspects of poverty. So do join us to continue this conversation outside. Um, thank you very much to our um, online audience um, and for your questions. I'm sure we can get through all of them. Um, and thank you to our panelists. So thank you very much. Uh, Dave Hill, Manny Hoti, uh, Claire Harding, Lucia Scott, and Stuart Lackley. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.